Welcome to today's webinar. We will give folks about a minute to get in their seats and then we will get started. Welcome to today's um, JNEB Journal Club webinar. Um, my name is Rachel Daker. I'm the Executive Director of the Society for Nutrition, Education, and Behavior, and glad you're joining us for the presentation today. Um, I do have the slides. Let me put those in the chat block uh, so you can download the slides and follow along during the presentation. Uh, we will take questions at the end of the presentation, so please uh, type those in the Q&A block uh, so we can moderate questions to our presenter. Uh, when I close out the webinar today, there'll be a short survey, uh, so please uh, share your feedback on this session as well as ideas for future webinars. And then watch for an email follow-up. It should come before Wednesday of this week. Um, we're getting some folks who are saying they're not seeing the email follow-up. Um, it does come from Zoom, and I think this, the actual sender says no reply at zoom.us. Um, so if you for some reason that you don't receive it, um, just send us an email and we'll be happy to forward along uh, the recording, the link to the handout, as well as the CEU certificate that you're earning for your attendance. Um, but do try to search for that um, Zoom email that has all the follow-up uh, information in that. Um, so I will turn things over to our moderator, um, Dr. Kristen DiFilippo, a teaching assistant professor at the University of Illinois. Thank you, Rachel. Our speaker today is Lauren Denor. She is an associate professor of nutrition in the Department of, Food and, of Nutrition and Food Studies at Montclair State University. A registered dietitian, certified lactation counselor, and public health professional, Dr. Denor holds a doctorate of public health and a master's in public health with a concentration in public health nutrition. Her research focuses on health-promoting policies, programs, and practices that improve childhood nutrition and food security, particularly in the area of breastfeeding or chest feeding, school food, and university settings. Prior to joining the faculty at Montclair State University, Dr. Denor worked as a clinical dietetics practitioner, community dietitian, and public health researcher. Today, she's going to be talking to us about her work, use of mobile applications for infant feeding. At this point, I can hand it over to Dr. Denor. Good afternoon. Thank you so much, Kristen. Um, as Kristen mentioned, I'm Lauren DeNor, Associate Professor of Nutrition at Montclair State University in New Jersey. Thank you for having me here today. I was really honored to be invited to speak with you about my research regarding the use of mobile applications, or I'm gonna to refer to them as apps uh, for infant feeding. In 
In terms of the nutrition educator competencies that will be touched upon in this talk, we have 2.1, 8.1, and 10.1. And in terms of disclosures, I want to let you know that I do not have any significant or other financial relationships with industries or companies to disclose outside of my own employment at Montclair State University. I do not endorse any app brand, company, or devices that are discussed in this presentation. And the authors of the two manuscripts discussed do not have any actual or potential conflicts of interest to disclose. So how I'm going to structure my presentation today is give you a little bit of a introduction to the topic, review the first study that is the study um, that was published in the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior last year. Then tell you a little bit about another study that I had co-authored uh, that looked at um, another side of the topic, review a little bit more about research that has been published since my two papers were published, and then um, give some time for questions and answers. So just to start giving the overall recommendations for infant feeding, in the United States, the American Academy of Pediatrics recommends that infants be exclusively breastfed for the first six months of life. So nothing else besides human milk. And that breastfeeding be continued alongside foods introduced around six months for about two years or more. And this is a fairly recent update. This was updated last year. It used to be that the recommendation for duration was about a year or more. Uh, so we don't have data that measures breastfeeding rates at two years or beyond, but we do know how often are, are how the rates of breastfeeding, excuse me, through, through 12 months. So let's take a look at those. And this is the most recent data we have from the CDC, which is from infants who were born in the year 2019. So in 2019, four out of every five infants were breastfed at birth. And this, this is great. This, this rate has been increasing over the past two decades. You know, in fact, in 2000, 70% of infants were ever breastfed. So we are up in that, in that sense. However, we still have a ways to go to meet the AAP's recommendations. So what we can see is that 25% of infants are being exclusively breastfed for that six month recommendation. And 36% of infants are still being breastfed any human milk at 12 months. And it really seems like those first few weeks of after birth are the most crucial ones because we start at 83% of infants who are ever breastfed at birth. By week one, we're down to 63% of infants who are exclusively breastfed. By week two, 60%. By week three, 58%. And week four, at 57%. So we have, we have a ways to go to be meeting these uh, recommendations from the American Academy of Pediatrics. And like many other public health issues, breastfeeding is influenced by a number of factors, which likely explains much of the decline in the slopes of the two lines on this graph. So if we take a social ecological approach to breastfeeding behaviors, we know, for example, at the individual level, reasons for early breastfeeding cessation include things like 
inadequate knowledge, perceived inconvenience, embarrassment, lactation problems, medical conditions which might impede lactation, um, lack of self-efficacy or self-confidence towards breastfeeding, et cetera. At the interpersonal level, we find that partner support, family support, peer and friendship supports can kind of be a make or break situation for breastfeeding behaviors. Uh, at the community level, we have things like lack of professional assistance, whether that's from a pediatrician or from a lactation consultant, um, early return to work and or lack of workplace supports to support breastfeeding and milk expression while at work. At the policy and macro system level, we have hospital policies such as baby family hospital initiatives that can be supportive of breastfeeding right after birth. Um, we have social norms, we have marketing of human milk substitutes like infant formulas. And then of course the socio-historical context such as things like slavery and racism, discrimination, bias treatment, um, which can explain a lot of the um, disparities in breastfeeding rates. And we've been living in the age of informatics for quite some time now, and it only seems to be expanding day by day. And so the question that originally came to my mind at the time was, can technology actually help in the reduction or the elimination of some of the barriers to breastfeeding behaviors? And so in taking a look at the prior literature, there were papers that looked at various technologies and their relationship to breastfeeding. So for example, prenatal completion of technology-based breastfeeding education programs have been associated with higher rates of breastfeeding initiation, duration, and exclusivity. Postnatal telelactation offers convenience for new mothers wanting to access professional lactation support and has been shown to increase breastfeeding confidence compared to mothers who lack a lactation consultant. And we've seen a, a rise in telehealth as a result of COVID-19 and telelactation is, is one form of, of telehealth. Text messages um, such as SMS type of services can provide tailored responses direct to someone's phone. They can provide best practices for breastfeeding and they've been associated with increased likelihood of exclusive breastfeeding. And then finally, social media allows for virtual peer-based support groups for breastfeeding mothers, as well as having someone's questions answered pretty quickly and to share information in a social group of like-minded people. So I was curious about smartphone applications in particular, smartphone apps, because the most recent data that we've seen shows that 95% of US adults ages 18 to 49, which is also that kind of prime childbearing age, 95% of those adults own a smartphone. So apps are a major feature of smartphones and um, they have been shown in terms of other health apps to improve, for example, dietary intake, to increase weight loss, to decrease perceived barriers to healthy eating, but not as much is known about how mobile apps, particularly those that track and support infant feeding um, more generally and human milk feeding specifically, how those seem to play in um, breastfeeding behaviors. 
So in looking at the literature that's available, um, what we see is that apps can assist in infant feeding by allowing users to track infants intake, their output, their growth, their solid food intake, and other details which can be useful if issues occur or to answer questions asked by healthcare providers. Studies show that these apps provide a convenient, data-driven approach to guiding feeding decisions and infant care. They can bolster someone's self-confidence and self-efficacy and offer a sense of control, particularly at a time that feels a little bit out of control. However, these apps, especially with all the things that can be tracked, can be overwhelming to new parents, especially if they don't know how to interpret the data that they're tracking. And studies have also assessed these apps holistically and have seen that some of them, many of them actually offer poor coverage of information or they're providing incorrect or incomplete information on the topics being addressed, although the quality has improved with time. But little is known about the characteristics of women who choose and use commercially available infant feeding apps. Among the published studies, samples have been fairly small. So for example, there was a study done where nine mothers were uh, interviewed, those who were using infant feeding apps. And so that was a pretty small sample or the samples are lacking any kind of demographic details. For example, there was a study that looked at anonymous public user reviews of 75 maternal and infant health apps that were posted on two popular app stores. So unfortunately, while we can see what they reported, we don't know who they are, who the users are. And existing studies most commonly evaluate a single app for its usability or impact on infant feeding outcomes. So the researchers would develop an app and then test it for its effectiveness. Um, and not all of these apps are available on the app stores for use. So we can't be certain whether the users of that new app that was offered through a research study are like the general users of these apps um, that are accessible from the app stores. So what I was really looking to do with the study was to address this research gap by comparing the users and non-users of commercially available infant feeding apps to determine if characteristics differ between users and non-users. So this is a study that was published in the Journal of Nutrition Education and Behavior last year called Infant Feeding Tracker Applications, Cross-Sectional Analysis of Use. And the aims of this study were threefold. First, to determine the extent to which postpartum patients are using mobile tracker apps to assist with infant feeding. The second was to determine the characteristics of infant feeding app users compared with non-users to see if there was a difference in who's using these apps. And the third was to determine the infant feeding app features that were most utilized and most desired. So to do this, I conducted a cross-sectional study um, using a convenient sample of English-speaking mothers who were 18 years and older, affiliated with a obstetrics gynecology practice in Northern New Jersey, and who were coming to the office for their six week postpartum checkup. And we conducted this using a paper survey given to these women anywhere between January of 2019 and December of 2019. So we surveyed them throughout the year 
uh, at this one practice. The survey took about five minutes. Like I said, it was on paper and it was broken out into three sections. The first section was looking at demographic information about the respondents. It was 10 items and it asked things like their age range, their race, their ethnicity, marital status, employment status, uh, parental leave, whether they took it or not, for how long and whether it was paid, their highest level of education, their household income, et cetera. The next set of questions were about the respondents' youngest infants and their infant feeding practices, which included things like the delivery method of their infant, the due date, the date of birth, uh, their, the mother's desire to breastfeed, their confidence in breastfeeding, and whether they breastfed or uh, fed infant formula, and if fed formula, when was the first time they introduced it. And then the third section looked at the respondents' use of smartphones, infant feeding tracker apps, and health apps more generally. And then we ended up having a fairly, a relatively small sample size. It wasn't nine, it was 126. But as a result, um, we used Fisher's exact test of independence to compare the categorical characteristics of participants uh, between users and non-users of mobile apps for infant feeding. We use Kramer's V to calculate uh, the strength of association between the categorical variables. And because the data were not normally distributed, we use the Man Whitney U test to compare the difference between respondents uh, who were users and non-users of these apps on the continuous variables. And all the tests were two-tailed and tested against a Bonferroni adjusted alpha of 0 0.002 to control for the family-wise error rate. So as I mentioned, there were 126 women included in this study. When looking at their age distribution, the majority were either 25 to 29 or 30 to 34. We had about 6% who were younger, 18 to 24 years old, and another 6% who were older uh, in the 35 to 39 age range. The vast majority of our sample was white at 78% and non-Hispanic, two-thirds were non-Hispanic. Um, from a pre pre-tax household income. We had about 48% of the sample who lived in a household um, that had an annual income of 96,000 and 16% who were in a household uh, that was making less than $76,000 a year. In terms of the highest level of education, the majority of our sample had earned a bachelor's degree or higher with 18% um, earning an associate's degree or less than that. So some other details, respondents had between one and three children. All of the respondents reported having health insurance and most of them received it through their employer. All of the respondents, so 100% of the respondents owned a smartphone and three quarters of them owned an Apple smartphone, like an iPhone. In terms of their most recent birth, three quarters of the sample experienced a vaginal delivery. Infants were anywhere between 36, were born anywhere between 36 days before and 14 days after their due date. And respondents took anywhere between zero and 22 weeks of parental leave. In terms of respondents' breastfeeding behaviors, 
92% of the respondents indicated that their infants had ever been breastfed. And so this is a much higher rate than we have nationally. Just as a reminder, our national rate is 83% who have ever breastfed. Of those 92% who had ever breastfed, 84% of the infants were still being breastfed or fed human milk at the time of the survey. And about half of them, 52%, were being exclusively breastfed at the time of the survey. And again, this was roughly six weeks postpartum. So to address that first specific aim, which was to determine the extent to which postpartum patients are using mobile tracker apps for infant feeding, what I saw was that over half of the respondents were, they were 57% were using a mobile app to track infant feeding. And just as a reminder, 100% of these women had a smartphone. When asked what app they were using, I got six different app names. And those are shown here, with Baby Tracker being the one that was reported more than 70% of the time. Uh, Sprout Baby, Glow Baby, What to Expect, Baby Nursing, and Feed Baby Pro were the others. And among those users of these infant feeding apps, 75% reported using the app eight or more times a day, and another 24% used the app between five to seven times per day. So pretty much almost everyone who was using these apps were using them at least five to seven times a day, if not more. And they started using these apps pretty early on. So 68% started using these apps when the infant was less than a week old, Another 29% started using it with the infant was between one and two weeks old, and 94% of them were still using the app at the time of the survey. And I just wanna say that there were another 11 respondents who indicated that they were using some sort of alternative tracking method instead of an app. Six of them said they were handwriting notes to themselves. Two of them said they just were relying on memory. One person responded using a clock. Another person responded using a spreadsheet. And then one person replied that they fed on demand. In terms of the second aim, which was to determine the characteristics of infant feeding app users compared with non-users, we looked at all of the different characteristics between the two groups and there really was no difference, no significant difference, for example, when it came to age or race or marital status or employment status or leave taken or, or any of those characteristics. The only significant differences that, that I found between users and non-users were when it came time to whether the infant was ever breastfed and whether the infant was exclusively breastfed. So we find that um, among those who used a mobile app for infant feeding, more were using the app if they had ever breastfed compared to those who were not using the app. And the same thing with exclusive breastfeeding, the distribution of those using um, an app were more likely to be exclusively breastfeeding their infants than those who were not using the app. Also, what we found was that infant feeding tracker app users used significantly more health apps than non-users. So we were seeing kind of this pattern where individuals who were using this app were also using other health apps, popular health apps on their phones. 
And then for the third aim, determining the infant feeding app features most used and desired. All users reported that the app helped them meet their infant feeding goals and all would recommend the app that they used to another parent. So there was a lot of positive feedback about these apps. And in terms of the purposes or, or the features that were most utilized, not surprisingly, the majority of individuals reported using these apps for feeding tracking, whether it was the stop and start times of feeds, the total time of feeding um, from a breastfeeding perspective, which breast was last nursed from, the number of feedings per day and the volume of feedings. Uh, there was slightly less individuals using this for pumping or milk, breast milk expression session tracking. Uh, and then we had about two thirds of the sample also using the app for other reasons like tracking diaper changes, um, about half were using it to track nap and sleep schedules. Then there are slightly less using it for other types of tracking like infant growth, developmental milestones, illnesses, fevers, well visits, vitamins, vaccines, et cetera. There were also some non-tracking features that were utilized, although it was a smaller percentage of the group, the, the 72 individuals who were using these types of, of apps. And those included things like push notifications, alarms, reminders, articles, guidance, frequently asked questions, the ability to export data to be able to share with someone else, maps and locations on where to feed or change infants. And there were about 10% who identified some other features that were used but didn't specify what those were. And I also asked the question, you know, what additional features would make this app more useful for you? And only five people responded. And what they said was, two of them said nothing. Two of them were very happy with the app that they had. One wrote um, voice command feature, one wrote a maps feature, and one actually said a streamlining of features because there was too many options and it made things overwhelming, particularly for her as a first time mother. And so I just wanna say that uh, the findings for this study really do need to be taken into context with the, with the limitations, which for one, this was a convenient sample. And of course, convenient samples can be inherently biased, assuming that their population is homogenous, which uh, it is not. However, this particular sample was relatively small and homogenous. Like I said, it was majority white, majority non-Hispanic, um, pretty highly educated group and also from a single OBGYN practice. And then the survey was only available in English. So um, this wasn't, uh, this was a native speaking population. Um, so the, really this limits the ability to conduct subgroup analyses and to generalize the results more broadly, at least across the nation. I also wanna say that uh, mobile apps usually are concerned with low user retention rates. And unfortunately, because this was limited to individuals who are coming for their six week postpartum visit, we were really only able to capture user engagement over six weeks postpartum. However, research suggests that regular use of an app self-monitoring functions, like the ones that are offered in these infant feeding tracking apps, increases the uh, probability of sustained app use. And what we saw was that still 94% of the individuals who started using the app we're still using it at the time of the study. I also wanna say that data were only captured among those who are willing to complete the survey. 
So we have information available regarding non-responders or a response rate. Um, so it's possible that users of the infant feeding app were more likely to self-select into this study, but I, I can't confirm or deny that the possibility of that, of that bias. And I will also say this, that uh, as I'm sure as many people know, that apps are created, new apps are created all the time. Existing apps are frequently updated and in some cases they're removed entirely. And it's possible that respondents who completed the survey in January had different app access than those who responded in December. Um, so this is the kind of thing that we would need to be studying often. But some takeaways from this study were that infant feeding tracker apps are commonly used, at least among the sample, um, particularly among those who breastfeed and exclusively breastfeed or use other health apps. Infant feeding tracker apps can support parents in meeting their infant feeding goals. Again, they all said that that, that, that was something that the app helped them do. And it also assists in tracking other relevant infant data besides feeding. But we need more research to really understand app interest and utilization by more diverse populations um, and to explore the range and average duration of mobile health technology engagement for the purposes of infant feeding and infant care. Um, how app users choose one app over another, right? 70% of individuals were using the same app, at least an, uh, an app of the same name. So how do they make those decisions? What additional features are offered by infant feeding tracking apps that weren't captured in this study? And what is the impact of tracking app usage on infant feeding and other infant care behaviors? And how could these apps potentially benefit clinical practice? And so I worked with a colleague to try to address this middle bullet here, the additional features offered by infant feeding tracking apps. And so, um, my colleague Antoinette Pohl, also from Montclair State University, and I conducted a second study also published in 2022, this one in JMIR Pediatric Comparenting, uh, called Evaluation of Breastfeeding App Features Content Analysis Study. And so we were, what we were looking to do here was to first characterize these breastfeeding apps, the ones that are available publicly in um, the Apple App Store and Google Play, and we wanted to characterize them in terms of their ratings, their development, and their other app details, including the features that they offered. We also wanted to assess whether the apps with higher versus lower user ratings differed in the types of features that they offered, both in terms of their tracking features and their non-tracking features. And then we wanted to determine whether the type and the number of features predicted user star ratings and whether an app is higher or lower rated. So to do this, we again employed a cross-sectional study. We used content analysis in this one, um, whereby in, in the fall of 2018, we, had, we asked a grad student to conduct a keyword search in the Apple App Store and Google Play Store to create the sample of breastfeeding apps. And in January 2019, we had another student do the same thing to really make sure we got as many apps uh, as we could possibly find and that take into account that time lag uh, where new apps are being developed and old apps are uh, removed. 
And so we we finalized that sample in February of 2019 with a total of 82 apps. 40 came from um, the Apple App Store, 42 from Google Play, which is you know pretty much down the middle in terms of the sample. 80 of the apps were free to users. Two of them were paid uh, apps. We did not exclude any apps based on their cost. Once we had our sample of 82 apps, we then coded each of them based on 87 distinct variables, which included things like descriptive characteristics that we were able to get from the app store itself, such as the name of the app, the link, the date it was downloaded, the version number, the date of the last update, the number of stars out of five that it was given by users, the number of user ratings that it had, the app category, the language it was offered in, the cost, etc. We also looked at tracking features. So this we defined as any type of feature uh, that allowed someone to record data. So that was anything related to breastfeeding, to bottle feeding, solid foods, pumping and milk expression, diapering, bathing, sleeping, you name it. <laughs> if it can be tracked, we, we coded it. And then we also looked at non-tracking features. And these were things like um, the ability to add notes or the ability to connect the app to a breast pump or to print or export data, or to sync data with another device, to share data with a family member or a healthcare provider, the ability to customize features, those kinds of things, anything that was a non-tracking option. And because we had so many features that we were tracking, we created summative in indices. So we, we created five tracking indices based on like variables. So we had a breastfeeding indice, a bottle feeding indice, a solid food indice, infant health indice, and infant care. And then we had four non-tracking indices, technical, informatics, informational, and interactive. We ran descriptive statistics to characterize the sample of apps, and we, report, we reported those as frequencies and percentages. We also defined apps that were rated 4.5 or higher in their stars as higher rated apps. Anything that was less than 4.5 stars were considered lower rated apps. And originally we wanted to follow prior research that used that a uh, cutoff of four stars as the higher versus lower, but we had a pretty skewed sample where the, the average score was 4.4 stars. And um, there were only a very few that had less than four stars. So in order to make comparisons, we moved that cutoff up to 4.5. To compare higher versus lower rated apps, again, at that 4.5 or higher cutoff, we used the Shapiro-Wilk test to assess the normality of the data. And we found that the indices were not normally distributed. So we conducted uh, Mann-Whitney U tests to compare the higher versus lower user ratings by index to see if that differed. And then to determine the predictive relationships between user ratings and indices, we first conducted a Spearman's rank correlation between the indices, the user star ratings, and whether the app was rated higher versus lower. And any indice that was significantly correlated with the user star ratings were included in a linear regression model 
except for bottle feeding, because bottle feeding and breastfeeding indices were very highly correlated. So because of we, we um, wanted to avoid any multicollinearity, we removed bottle feeding from the, uh, from the regression. And then we used the same indices to enter into a binary logistic regression model to examine their ability to predict the higher versus lower rated apps. For all of our tests, they were two-tailed and they were tested against an alpha of 0 0.05. So the first aim was to characterize these apps. Well, like I said, 82 of them were reviewed. Almost, it was almost a 50-50 split between uh, iPhone and Android. Most of them were free. All but two of them uh, were free to use and download. Two of them cost between $399 and $499. So they were fairly low cost. All of these apps were available in English, but there were a subset that were available in other languages, such as Spanish and Chinese. The average rating of these apps, like I said, was 4.4 out of five. So it's relatively highly rated sample of apps. And the number of user ratings varied. So there were some apps that only had, or there was one app that only had four user ratings, um, all the way up to another app that had over 81,000 ratings. And then we also looked at the app category. The majority of these apps were categorized as parenting apps or medical apps. Much fewer were considered health or fitness apps, lifestyle apps, productivity, or tools. When looking at whether apps with higher and lower user star ratings differed in their tracking and non-tracking features, we used the Man Whitney U test um, to take a look at differences. And what we found was that all of the indices were significant. And the mean ranks for all indices, except for the informatics, informational, and interactive indices were greater among higher rated apps than lower rated apps. And in particular, the breastfeeding and solid food indices yielded the most notable differences in median scores between higher and lower rated apps. You can see here a difference of about three, and here, again, a difference of three between the median scores. And then we wanted to see, well, does the type and number of features predict user star ratings and whether an app is higher or lower rated? And so for this, again, we did the Spearman rank correlation between user star ratings and the solid food index. And we saw that, um, at least for the solid food index, I'm, I'm sorry, that was a positive and uh, strong correlation between user star ratings and the solid food index. We had uh, moderate but significant relationships between the breastfeeding index, the bottle feeding index, and the technical index with the number of user star ratings. And we also did the same to look at higher versus lower ratings. And again, we found the correlation between an app being higher rated and the solid food index was positive and strong. The correlation between the breastfeeding index and the higher versus lower ratings was positive and moderate. And for the other two, it was positive and weak. 
So we put those into the linear regression model. Uh, again, we, we left out the bottle feeding indice because it was highly correlated with the breastfeeding indice. And so when we conducted the linear regression, we saw that the independent variables explained 17% of the user star ratings. So while the model was significant, clearly there were other things that were leading to or predicting user star ratings for these apps. But in particular, what was interesting here <clears throat> was that both the solid food index and the breastfeeding index were significant predictors of user star ratings, but that the solid food feature, you know, the, the higher the solid food indice, um, the higher the user star ratings. In essence, for every additional solid food feature that was included in the app, the user star rating increased by 35%. We saw that a little bit less for the breastfeeding index, where for each additional breastfeeding feature, we saw a 27% increase in user star ratings. We also conducted a binary logistic regression analysis to perform uh, to, to determine whether indices predicted higher user star ratings. And in the adjusted model, only the solid food index was significant. So here, the odds of an app receiving a higher user star rating compared to a lower user star rating increased by 58% for each additional solid food feature. So across both of these regression models, the solid food index was significant. And we, you know, we thought this was really interesting because the majority of these apps are utilized early on, at least from what we learned in the prior study, uh, and they're used for bottle feeding and, and breastfeeding. Um, but it was the solid food index in particular that was predicting the user star ratings of these apps. And so this might prolong actually the, the usefulness of these apps beyond those first few weeks or months um, when solid food feeding starts to be introduced, which allows for someone to continue to use a comfortable and familiar app over the long term, um, almost tapping into like a one-stop shop when it comes to app use. So again, there were some limitations of this study as well. So this was a cross-sectional study and it was a convenient sample, although we did try to be as thorough as possible in our search. It is possible that we missed you know, some of the apps as a result of the keywords that we used. Uh, as I mentioned, new apps are introduced into the market all the time. This is only a snapshot. And if we were to do the study again, I'm sure that there would be new apps in the market and several of the apps that we looked at would be no longer available. And of the apps that remain, their features may have changed over time. This research is also limited to English language apps in the US. As I didn't realize this at the beginning, but, but app stores are different depending on your geography. And, and so app stores have different apps depending on the country that you're in. Um, so the apps that are available in the United States are different than the, Apple, than the apps available elsewhere. Um, so this is specific to the United States. And this, this study did not examine the app for their clinical or scientific merits. We were really only looking at the features that were being offered. And it's important to know that there are studies that have shown that breastfeeding apps contain content or can contain content that is contrary to medical advice 
or that doesn't conform to national guidelines around infant feeding, but that was beyond the scope of the study and it is definitely worth taking a look at in this country. Um, but takeaways from this study really are that user ratings are partially driven by tracking features, specifically those that are related to breastfeeding and solid foods, and that those non-tracking features appear to be less predictive of how users rate apps. And again, this is similar to what I found in the, in the first study where less people were, were even utilizing those features to begin with. And we need, we still need more research to understand how these tracking features correspond to other usability features, whether they are appropriate to support breastfeeding goals or other infant feeding goals, the utility of those non-tracking features and why um, they don't seem to be a significant predictor of, of app ratings or why they're not being utilized more often and the reasons for app adoption, again, how people choose one app over another. And so kind of taking this all together, these two studies together, we see, you know, infant feeding tracking apps, they're commonly used, they're used early, they're used often, they're relatively highly rated by users, specifically focused on breastfeeding um, and or women who are breastfeeding and exclusive breastfeeding. And it's those breastfeeding and solid food feeding features that are really driving the user ratings. So I wanna end by just sharing some of the newer research just in the past year, because this is a growing, a steadily growing field of research. Um, there are at least six, as this is a, um, a review just in the past year, like I said, six papers that have each looked at specific apps kind of uh, related to one of the um, limitations or areas of gaps that I talked about earlier was that each of these was taking a look at a single app and not all of these are available necessarily in commercial app stores. Um, but there was one in the United States by Mobley et al called Baby Bite, where what they found was that parents were most interested in the feeding tips, the recipe content and the tracking features for child growth and feeding goals available within this app. But they did look at mothers and fathers separately and they saw that there were some different differences in what individuals were interested in, whereas fathers were more interested in safety content, such as um, first foods and choking hazards. Mothers were more interested in content regarding breastfeeding and picky eating. And they also saw differences based on income, where lower income parents were interested in nutrition guidelines and breastfeeding while non lower income parents were interested in food allergies and portion sizes. So taking a look at some of the different qualities and characteristics um, of these apps and who's interested in what. The second paper looked, this was out of Australia, looked at an app called My Baby Now. And what found was that women without a university degree rated the app higher and found its content more useful than women with a university degree. So perhaps some educational differences in who utilizes these apps and how they feel about them. Although breastfeeding knowledge, exclusive breastfeeding intentions and breastfeeding attitudes and confidence increased with use of this app. Uh, Park et al. in Korea developed an app called Breastfeeding for Gestational Diabetes Mellitus app where it offers a single app to track both breastfeeding and gestational diabetes 
Whereas prior to the development of this app, those were two or more separate apps. And this app uh, provides mothers with information regarding how to breastfeed. It provides a breastfeeding journal, breast management techniques and questions and answers, which showed to increase women's self-efficacy with breastfeeding. Three more, uh, one out of India called the Best for Baby app that seemed to have increased breastfeeding knowledge and skills when the app was used while breastfeeding and training and support were available throughout the app. Usability showed to increase in participants. Uh, the LACT app, which is actually an app out of Europe, but is available globally. Um, they took, the authors here took a look at the use of this app during COVID-19. And what they found was that the topics that were most popular during this time included things around growth spurts, breastfeeding stages, breastfeeding um, uh, relactation, insufficient milk supply, increased milk de demand, and it seemed to be particularly useful for women who were unable to receive appropriate breastfeeding support during the COVID-19 quarantine period. And the last one of this kind was a app that was developed in Vietnam that was an information-based mobile app that seemed to have improved breastfeeding outcomes in women who had cesarean sections. Um, so these all seem to be very positive in their outcomes when it comes towards self-efficacy, self-confidence, and actual um, breastfeeding behaviors. There were two other studies uh, that were published in 2022. The first was actually a validation study that looked at an instrument to measure users' perceptions of breastfeeding apps. And so this might be a useful tool that we use going forward to help determine which apps might be most useful um, for individuals to use. And the second paper by Sawala et al. actually was very similar to the first paper I, uh, I presented on, where they looked at functionality and usage of mobile breastfeeding tracking apps. But in this case, it was among a German population. And what was interesting about this paper was that they identified three different types, three different tracking types of individuals, of users. They had one called the straightforward basic trackers. 43% of the users were in this category. They were more likely to stick to the basics of self-tracking. They reported time, they reported the length of breastfeeding, and they basically accessed just general advice and, and the visuals that were available. Another 36% of the users were considered meticulous data collectors. They collected data regularly. They had the most varying types of data that they reported. They reported things like the amount of milk consumed during breastfeeding and pumping length, and they were more likely to engage in interpersonal talks slightly more often. And then the remaining percentage of users, 21%, were considered advisory-oriented self-trackers where they were likely to log numerous types of data, incorporate wearables for breastfeeding purposes, and to hold strong demands for personalized advice and rewards, and then discuss the results either in person, within the app, or on social media. So this is just another um, look at how we can think about the, the users of these types of apps. Um, what I do wanna highlight though in this, in this paper was that they found that 
mothers breastfeeding self-efficacy was actually lower among users who were most engaged with the app and higher among those who were least engaged with the app. So it kind of leads us to question whether these breastfeeding trackers actually enhance or undermine mother's confidence in breastfeeding abilities. However, again, this was a, among a group of German women and part of the you know, uh, characteristics of, of users versus non-users may be geographically dependent based on the national context of breastfeeding. Um, so it's, you know, again, worth taking a look at for future research, um, whether this holds true in other countries like the United States. Uh, and then I have my references here and I think I have a few minutes for questions. If anyone has any questions, I'd be happy to answer them. Thank you so much. As people have questions, if you want to put those into the question box. So one question that I had from your from the first study you talked about, um, you talked about apps being correlated with breastfeeding. Um, I was wondering if you got a sense from the study if it seemed that women who used apps were, were more likely to continue breastfeeding because of using the app or if women, if there was another factor of women who were likely to continue breastfeeding were also women who were likely to use apps in the first place? Um, so I didn't ask that question specifically, but it did seem that it, it's hard to know what came first, right? What, which is the driving force. And because this was a, a cross-sectional study um, and I was looking to keep things pretty quick at, they completed these surveys in the waiting room before uh, going into their appointments. I, I was not able to ask that question, but it's definitely a good question to ask um, and, and perhaps would be a great uh, longitudinal study to see, um, you know, whether these apps were uh, helping to prolong breastfeeding over time, particularly exclusive breastfeeding um, or, or not. Yeah. That was certainly an interesting correlation there with that mm -hmm. study. Um, also interesting with the study in Germany with the, uh, you said the increased uh, or decreased self-efficacy with those who used apps. Um, do you think it's possible that those who are using apps are using them because they have less self-efficacy? So they're searching for more support maybe? So again, it's another good question. Um, and it would require some some in-depth interviewing, I believe. But um, it could be that the act of tracking all this data makes one less confident that what they're doing is appropriate, right? Or is enough versus individuals who are just letting things happen, right? Without tracking all of that data. So in, in part, like I said, part of that may be like country specific. Um, perhaps in countries where tracking is so common. And I, I don't know what, what tracking is like in Germany, but I, I do know that we, we track a lot of data in the United States yeah. um, individually, right, even. And so for individuals who are already tracking their own health information, this just may come naturally to them to, to track their infant data too. 
but at the same time, like I said, it, it could, and this again is worth studying, it could it could lead to people being so heavily dependent on that data that they feel less confident in their own abilities innately uh, to ensure that their infant is being fed appropriately and properly and you know as efficiently and effectively as it, as they should be. Your work answers so many questions and then there's so many more to be asked. So it's <laughs> such an interesting, interesting line of work to look at. I want to thank you so much for sharing your research with us today. I know I learned a lot and I'm sure everyone listening in did. So at this point, I can pass it back to Rachel. Yes, excellent. Thank you for the presentation. Uh, just a reminder that there's a short survey when I close the webinar and your feedback's appreciated. Um, watch for the email follow-up. It should arrive in your inbox probably tomorrow, but no later than Wednesday. Um, and remember that that's coming from Zoom. And then we have kind of hit the halfway part point of Journal Club, but, but there's um, many more um, sessions on the schedule. So please check the SNEB website for upcoming webinars. And then just another reminder that um, conference registration is open um, to receive the lowest rate for registration. Um, please register before May 1st. Um, and if you have any questions, just contact the office. So look forward to seeing you back online again soon.